What, which, this, that, or the other? From Bonnaroo to Coachella, traversing the music festival landscape can be tricky. That's where we come in with high fives for everyone. The What Podcast with Brad, Barry, Lord Taco, dedicated to exploring the entire festival scene. Brad has worked in the radio industry for more than 20 years and currently lives in Brooklyn, where he is program director for three stations, including one in New York, one in Detroit, and one in Miami. Barry's been a reporter for the Chattanooga Times Free Press, covering all aspects of the entertainment industry since 1987. That's before you were born. Lord Taco, the smart guy who makes these podcasts on our website at thewhatpodcast.com work. Also really good at identifying babies, loves blue-haired moms, PBR, and his beautiful Volkswagen bus. We all fell in love with the Bonnaroo Festival years ago, not only because of the amazing bands that play there every year, but also because of the incredible community spirit that has developed around it. Radiate positivity. And we really like talking about the inside baseball stuff when it comes to putting on a huge music festival. So join us. You can hear the What Podcast on the Consequence Podcast Network or anywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Hey pod people, Engineer Adam here, jumping in for a quick second to let you know about the brand new all-in-one platform for all of you creative podcasters out there. Anchor makes it easier than ever to make a podcast. It's free to use and has all the creation tools you need to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Plus, Anchor will get your podcast set up on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are found. Even better, Anchor helps you connect with sponsors, even if you're just starting out. It's the perfect choice for podcasters, so make sure to check it out. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M. Back to the show. Do you read Stephen King? Good news. There's a club for you. The Losers Club. Every Friday, us losers journey through the never-ending wastelands of King's Dominion. We sink our teeth into each of King's novels, dive deep into the lore, and review every adaptation. Even better, we're always having guests over. Thomas Jane, Will Wheaton, Mary Lambert, Mick Garris, the list goes on. So what are you waiting for? Join us as we read on through long days and pleasant nights. Consequence Podcast Network. To all of you amazing pod people out there, I am your host, Leo Phillips, and this is another edition of This Must Be the Gig, your little backstage pass to the world of live music. Each and every week, I try my hardest to bring you a fascinating conversation from the beating heart of the performance world, and that could really mean chatting to a musician or a festival founder, a choreographer, a comedian, an actor, really anyone in the world who is obsessed with performance the way that we are, but before we dig into this week's fantastic interview and wonderful guest, which I am so humbled to have just even shared a moment with, let's check in first with our constant companion. I don't know why my voice went high pitched at TMBTG Studios, Engineer Adam. Hello. Hey. How are you doing this week? I'm just here watching the boards to make sure that we don't have any Coachella style sound issues. <laughs> Bazing. Bazing. Actually, Mark Hogan wrote an amazing essay on that. Go check it out. But I'm also just here pumped up and inspired by our guest this week. I know, me too. Let's get right into it. On today's show, we are joined by the one, 
the only Angelique Kidjo, the incredible singer and songwriter from Benin, was named Africa's premier diva by Time magazine. She's also one of Africa's 50 most iconic figures, according to the BBC, and one of the 100 most inspiring women in the world by The Guardian, among many other impressive accolades. And though our chat is focused mainly on music rather than politics, since her brand new album Celia is due out for release on April 19th, so just in a few days' time, on Universal and Verve, our conversation still really charged my soul. It felt like attending a protest or a peace rally. I I feel like I just sat there with my eyes closed most of the time. Um, afraid that if I opened it, something would stop, like the conversation would just end. It really is a beautiful conversation, and Kidjo has made major headlines in recent years, showcasing the shared musical roots uh, across genres, cultures, traditions. Yeah. She put out a sublime record of Talking Heads covers last year called Remain in Light, uh, performed as the soloist for Philip Glass's David Bowie indebted symphony, Lodger. And, as you already pointed out, has an upcoming record inspired by salsa queen Celia Cruz. So she's really just spanning all over the world. She is. She's proud of her African heritage and the myriad musical roots it takes, whether that's in the shape of art rockers in Rhode Island or a Cuban national hero. And in this chat, you two talk about African identity and the ways in which her music is tied to it and the ways in which really all music is tied to it. Of course we do. I couldn't help but corner a legend like her and get that insight because I feel like I've been screaming about it for so long. Absolutely. And having her talk about it just means it's that stamp of approval. Everybody's just got to listen to her <laughs> and think she's completely right, which she is. And we also talk a lot about Angelique's journey from her first performances in Benin and fleeing political unrest to Paris, all the way to perhaps her most undeniably incredible work to date, the Batonga Foundation. She established this nonprofit in 2006 with the goal of empowering and educating adolescent girls in Africa, so girls who often are excluded from such opportunities. A champion of hope and talent in Africa, Angelique wants to make sure that African leaders and citizens work together to improve the lives of women and children. And the Batonga Foundation mentors, empowers and trains women and girls in Benin to tap into their capacity and to be independent, to be powerful agents of positive change in their own lives and in their communities. And in fear of getting very teary, she really has started something that we all should be a part of, uh, from female mentorship, life and financial literacy skills, and entrepreneurship training. Batonga is making a difference in so many lives, but then also in the communities at large as well. You know, you, you teach you teach young girls how to be powerful, and they can take over the world. Usually this is the part of the intro where we ask you to write a review, to reach out to us. And and while we would still love to hear from you on social media at TMBTG Pod or to have a review on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts, it'd be even more incredible if our listeners could donate to the Batonga Foundation. No matter how small, every dollar counts. And it's really incredible to know that $25, just $25 could send a disadvantaged girl to school for an entire year. I mean, what is $25? It's like a salad in New York. 
Absolutely, you know, it $25 is. $25 is a, a, a meal. And it, for $25 only, you could send a girl to school for one whole year. It, it's mind-blowing how much we can help. And even if it's not $25, even if it's $5, it's something. So d- divert your attention from reviewing us this week i mean give us a review if you want to here here's but the let's, idea let's focus on the batonga foundation and i'm just so proud to be aligning with them here's the idea go to batonga foundation b-a-t-o-n-g-a-f-o-u-n-d-a-t-i-o-n.org donate five bucks donate 25 bucks whatever you can afford then leave us a review telling us you did it that you did it that's let a great, us know that's partnership show us your receipts but let us not be delayed. This is me and Angelique Kidjo. Enjoy! Tell me a little bit about this stage invasion because for listeners who haven't been <laughs> able to see you live, I know obviously from seeing you and... I just want to recreate that um, feeling of of comforting when when we I was in, in Benin mm. growing up when the drums comes in and I got to catch up with people I haven't seen in a while and being a kid just going around and dancing and everything was permitted. I mean you just feel free, you just run around, you do whatever you wanna do. Everybody got got an eye on you and you have fun. I mean it's it's a moment where you we we, we realize that well we each of us have a life, but it's good to reconnect, to come back together, especially in this era of net, uh, social network where people live in their bubble. I want people to realize that we got to live together. It's not a bubble that's going to save us from the reality of this world. Mm-hmm. And it's a celebration. It's a celebration. I just don't want also to be the type of artist that you see from far and you cannot come close to. Mm-hmm. If people don't come, you're nobody. And, and I think... Uh, it's true that you have to protect yourself to a certain extent because mm-hmm. there are some crazy people out there. But not being your public is dangerous because without them, if there's no, if there's no one, you, you're no one, you're nobody. You might be talented. If you're talented and you cannot touch people beyond your art and be there and they can see you and come close to you from time to time, then for me, it's um, I, I need people. I need people to... To tell me this story, I need to remind myself every day that I'm fortunate to be doing the job that I do. But that job is, is given to me, that talent of singing it has been given to me for me to share. Mm. And to bring people together, to empower people. To let people realize that each one of us have the power of transforming our world. It's not just the leaders of this country that have all the right. It's not because we vote for leaders in place that we cannot hold them accountable. And as an artist, I, I am the voice of voiceless. That's how they call me. But in a, in a way, no one want to hear any African person talking about the beauty of Africa. Mm-hmm. Everybody's so content and so satisfied by dehumanizing Africans, by diabolizing Africa. And everybody knows that without the resources of Africa, there's no economy in this world. So I want them to come close to me, then they can see that I'm just I'm just a human being equal to them. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Not just this foreign thing, because I feel, you know, reading a lot of your interviews, I'm from South Africa. I don't live in South Africa anymore. I moved a few years ago. I can hear, I can hear in your accent. I know that. Yeah. And, you know, when you are African and I've, I definitely I definitely associate as a South African mm-hmm. before anything else. Absolutely. And when Absolutely. you when you are African, you feel like all your stories from your parents and your grandparents, everything was told to you. And you become a storyteller within your art. You never become this person that's closed off. It's all about family. It's all about life. And I love oh, yeah. some things that I've read that you've said or some interviews that I've w- watched you do. I love how you make a point about explaining in a really simple way without sounding defensive you explain what the African spirit is, how accessible yep. it is, and where it comes from, and why it's so important. Which is why I was so excited to get to talk to you because there is so many misconceptions about Africa. You know, it's <coughs> having this like cultural moment at the. You know, everybody's like, "Ooh, Africa!" And like the truth is, we've been around. You've been around. We've all been around. Yep. We've been here it's watching. It's a constant battle. It's yeah. a constant battle. Yeah. And because, you know, I always say that, that um, it takes courage to leave. Mm, mm, I and agree. If you have the courage to leave, you have to be curious about other people and give them the chance to tell you who they are. But in our history, our history has been hijacked by the one, the people that came to Africa purposely to take our wealth. They knew from the get-go that they were going to commit in a crime against humanity. And they already prepared the narrative that's going to exonerate them mm-hmm. from being responsible for what is going on on that continent. Mm-hmm. So they make clear to tell the story first and loud enough with fast proof, with fast facts, that today we are, on, we are against a mountain that we can't basically, can basically climb because they have the bottom of the, the mountain stopping us from telling the story. Exactly. And, they want and, to tell it said, for, for you. Yes. Exactly. That's why each one of us, I always say to every African person that I met, I was at the, I, I was at the um, airport in Frankfurt. Um, I was in, um, in connection. And uh, I met South Africans. They were waiting there to take the plane to leave. They work for South African Airways. Mm. <laughs> and as a co-chair as, as with Lufthansa, the treatment they received in, in, in Germany versus the treatment we give the German people when they come to South Africa are two completely different stories. Totally. And I say you cannot just sit here and take that abuse because when they come to South Africa, we give them red carpet. So it has to be both ways because they, we are not giving them that it's not a charity business. They make lots of money coming to Africa. Most of those companies, airline companies, they make most of their money in Africa. So why should they treat us less, with less respect, when they're making more money from us? Absolutely. And if you don't speak up, I told those girls, if you don't speak up, I mean, pop the, pop the, the, the glass ceiling. Go to, your, to the people of South African Airways. Talk to them. If they don't want to do something, bring it to, to, to social networks. Mm. Why should we always give to the people that come from the Western country a platform for them to walk on us and stop on us and we can't say nothing? 
Well, it's because it's it's also because they feel like they can have the they can say the they can tell the story better than we can because either they think that none of us speak English or none of us understand or that we have lions in our back garden or you know things that are the perceptions of Africans overseas. You know they don't teach African studies; they just teach you know, local, they teach what happens to their country. And then we had to learn all about the world, you know, and I think yeah, that but no, yeah. it's really frustrating. It's true. You're completely right. It is frustrating, but, but it's coming back. It's coming back down to them today mm. because the reality check is coming up. And that's why we have so much crisis of identity in Europe. Mm. Because if you deny people the humanity, you endanger your own humanity. And that narrative cannot go on like that. If they don't want African people on their soil, they want, they call themselves Christian. They have to, Christianity, God has created us different, thinking that we'd be smart enough to see the beauty in that differences. That what you have to bring on the table versus what the other person has to bring to the table can meet in the in, in, in middle ground and create something more beautiful than hate that we're living in it. So if I said to I said, this is my point on this, this uh, populism and all this racism. Mm-hmm. I said, you want to keep your country from Westerner. Mm-hmm. Okay, you have all right to think that, that. So then all of you leave Africa and their resources and find the resources on your soil to live the life you live in today. If you don't want the people from Africa, then you don't want our resources. You don't want our oil. You don't want our diamonds. You don't want anything that comes from our soil. Live by yourself. Mm. If you really want to be true to that, that's the way it goes. You got to have the guts and sense to your people. Okay, you want to be between, you want to be by yourself. Okay, this is the deal. We're going to get poor. Are you ready for this? Because the Africans are the ones that are holding us up. I want to, I'm waiting for any, any of those populists from mm. Salvini in, in Italy. Salvini said nobody comes in, but all that is coming from Libya has no visa. It's coming in every day. So the Italian people do want to say, we don't want Africans. Then don't take oil from us. Find oil in your soil. Everything you need for your industry, find it in your soil. And then leave us alone and we stay home. We stay where we are and we sit on our resources. Mm. I don't want anybody to tell me that we are not smart enough to use our resources. We do whatever we want. We don't want to use it. It's our choice. We want to waste it. It's our choice. Just leave. You left early on when you were very young. You left Benin and you went to France, I believe. So how, how, because obviously feeling African, you can feel African anywhere. If it's in your blood, those roots are very strong. And knowing you can live anywhere in the world and still learn something and, you know, teach others about your roots it's it's not it's not a challenge it's a privilege no it's not it's not if you know where you come from you can go anywhere yeah i love that how was it to leave because it's been a while now and obviously do you live in the states now or do you live in europe yeah yeah i still live in the states okay it's not easy no that's what i said to people all the time people that that said why are you coming here why i'm not why is it that westerner can go anywhere it, 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 you're gonna see. I mean, if the words have power, mm. you see, when we come somewhere, we are immigrants. When the Westerner goes somewhere else, they come to Africa, they're, they're accepted. Yeah, 
I know. I know. And I'm like, why, why, why is this a different store? I mean, you're moving from your country to establish yourself somewhere else. You're an immigrant, too. Yeah, I'm an immigrant. I've always felt like an immigrant. I don't think I'll ever feel, you know, I don't, I, and I've worked so hard my whole life from the get-go. I, I don't think I'll ever feel like I'm part of anywhere other than South Africa because that's the place that I was born and that's the only place that will really accept me. Which is fine. Yeah, but that's where your own, that's where your umbilical cord is. Mm. Mm. That's where all your being is. I mean, people don't understand that being from a place is not just a fashion. Everything about every atom in your body is linked to that place. And when you move somewhere, you move with that or that atom, your DNA everywhere you go, and you bring something to it. And it's really funny. I mean, it, 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 it hit a journalist once. I was doing an interview in Switzerland. Mm-hmm. And the guy said, geez, I just realized that you coming in here, you enriching our culture. You come, because you come with a whole load of culture mm-hmm. that is different from us. It's really interesting for us to learn from. I said, thank you. But people don't think that. No. They're, they, they're seeing you as a threat. But threat to what? What did anyone bring to this on this earth? It does not matter if you're white, black, yellow, red, if you're rich or poor. The day you die, there's nothing you're going to take. No one come out of the mom's womb with the hand filled, filled up with gold or shackles. So we keep on forgetting those simple truths that every single human being on this planet is African. Mm. So you'll be racist, you'll be hateful as much as you want, but that simple truth, you cannot run away from it. And that's the problem of the Westerners. Mm. They've lived in denial so much. They have told lies after lies about us for so long that they don't know where to start to detangle the truth from the lie. And they continue, I think, also especially just from the side of, especially because you are a musician, you're an artist, you're an ambassador, and in your life, you know, people have told your story for you. So you do an interview and then people write your story, but it's very rare that those publications or those big uh, places are giving the voice to maybe an artist or a journalist from Benin or a journalist from no. Lagos or South Africa no. or even Vintuk. No. No. You know, there's it's no. very rare that they get given the chance to tell an African story. And it's exactly the same idea as a, the Latin community and having a Latina writer write about a Latina artist. They are going to write a much more worldly review and and they'll have an understanding that others won't and I feel like I just don't understand I think that's the whole thing is that when I heard that I was going to talk to you I think in my mind I was just like I I've been trying to speak to you for so long and I just don't understand this is my only opportunity because this is my own show you know I had to create a show (laughs) in order to be able to speak to the people that I know I can talk to yeah I'm sure you feel the same way as an African artist traveling the world and you've got these people asking you these really crazy questions you know oh baby um, you don't even want to know I can write a book about the stupid questions I can tell you that oh my god I'm sure I'm sure on which planet are you living on I mean, get out of your bubble, man. Yeah. So ignorance is an insult to yourself. That's yeah. what I say to people. 
I say, I know more about you than you know about me. I know. And that's what's so scary for them, I think, is that we grew up with American and Western music. You know, we grew up with that stuff. We know about it. But they haven't taken the time to learn about us by asking questions that really matter. You know, the ones that we would ask. You know, like when we meet people, you ask questions that talk yeah. to the heart. Absolutely. And, that's, and that ignorance is so scary because you, you can't not get offended. So how have you been able to use it as an empowering moment and a teachable moment for others? Yeah, but the thing, what happens to me sometimes is exactly what happened to you. When I arrived in France in 1983, one of the first stupid questions they asked me is like, how do you go about to buy your grocery on the back of an elephant? <laughs> no. I'm like, we're, we're in 1983 and you're asking me that. I said, yeah. you know what? Yes, of course. I yeah. sit on the back of an elephant <laughs> to go to the market and I have a monkey on my hand and my arms to go to get the stuff too. <laughs> it's a constant schooling people. And I said to people sometimes, I'm so sorry for your ignorance. I have been forced to learn about you. And then I will get curious to know more about you. But never you guys take the time to want to know about who we are and what we are. And then every time you want to go to Africa, you say, I go to Africa, I went to South Africa. I said, South Africa is beautiful, it's huge. But it's one part of Africa. Mm, exactly. You just put all the whole continent in one country. I'm like, people get out of there and people only go there because the tourist industry is booming so they they as you said that south africa rolls out the red carpet it isn't south africa is not africa you know benin is not yeah. africa each country is totally different has a different yeah, feeling a different language but that's the, you but know? that's the complexity of my job yes because when i do an album everybody say african and then I say, I'm from Benin, I'm from the continent of Africa. And the music in my country is different. That is the complexity the Westerner can't deal with. Because the story has been told and simplified in the way that they never thought about Africa being a continent of 54 countries. And I say to people all the time, even the map of Africa, the way it has been drawn by the Westerner, is to diminish its importance. Mm -hmm. We can put America and you can put the whole load of the rest of the planet in it and we still have some room. Yeah. That's how big Africa is. <laughs> we still and have some room. And you look at me and go, really? I say, yeah, really. And I said to them sometimes, I'm so sorry for ignorance. Your ignorance. I feel sorry for them because I'm like, one thing is they don't teach you in school. You become an adult. Have, do you have any curiosity to know about other people or you just want to live in your life and, and just thinking that, okay, if I don't know about Africa, it's okay. Till Africa closed everything and then you can't eat anymore. And I also think that it's obviously strange that then African artists, they have to have this responsibility weighing over them that everywhere they go, they know they're going to be called yes. Afro-pop or Afro-funk or, or, you know, they, Afro, they're going to be yeah. Afro-jazz. They're going to be named something. Afro-beats, Afro-something. Afro Afro and they're going to be named this thing that they aren't. Why can't they just be an artist? Why do you need to put a label on it when you don't even understand the complexity of where those drums are coming from. Why does the drum, no. you know, why does it have that sound? Why do the strings sound different? Like it's even just the format of a, of a song made by a musician 
in from Africa is completely different. We don't follow the same yes. rules. Yeah, but because the the media are not made for us. Mm. The media are made for uh, for uh, them to be telling. Everything is made for them to be telling the bad story about Africa. There's no room on prime time for any African artist because they say it's not sung in English. They keep on forgetting that the music that they have been listening to have come from Africa. Exactly. There's no one music exactly. on this planet that hasn't been impacted by Africa, all the way from from pop music to classical music. It's it does. I mean, you can call it any kind of name you want. There's Africa in every music you play, and that's kind of why I got into this as well, and why you know people often I've got to come up with challenges on my own, but I can't even imagine what kind of challenges you have, especially because Ooh. you push the boundaries of what you make of the songs that you make as well. You know your limitations, but you keep pushing yeah. through, and your yeah. your music never feels political but it feels politically timely it just feels yeah. like there's a statement there but you aren't i know that you're not political and you're not politically charged no, i'm not a politi- i don't want to do politics because i've 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 been around politicians long enough to understand that they are cold blooded killers they don't have no mm. they have no empathy no nothing it's just it's weird to watch them and to be in this in, in the in the sure. in the midst that's when you realize that you're better off being the musician that you are because you do more for people that they will ever do. That having said, I said that all the time, that if people don't want to learn about anything, the choices of ignorance, we choose it. Mm. There's a word in our vocabulary that I say is powerful and really important is the word choice. The choices we made define who we are till we die. If you decide to be ignorant and hateful, Till you die, there's nothing I can say to change you. But if you say to me, sorry of my ignorance, I don't know, I want to learn, I will spend time and talk to you. Exactly, exactly. You'll you'll take any time. Absolutely. There are some people that think that they are entitled to judge you. And I said, you have other issues in your life and don't make me the victim of your misery. I have nothing to do with your life. When you wake up in the morning, the choices you made have nothing to do with it. So therefore, live your life and let me live mine. And that's the main problem we have today. With the social networks that give power to coward people, to go after other people, because they know you can't find them. Mm. There are so miserable and hateful and angry people around the world that they are coming out because internet gives them the right to be bullies and to be murderers. So the culture is something that can make us know better. That's why everything I do, my music is about building bridges because I know we have more in common than more that we think divided us. That I'm, pro- I'm profoundly um, uh, um, sure about that because Every single human being on this planet, if when we wake up in the morning, we want to drink coffee or tea. We want to eat something before we leave. No matter where you are, we have to eat, we have to be healthy, and we have to go about and do what we have to do. From the moment we get up in from the bed, everywhere in the world, we have a purpose for that day. So it's those fundamental things, good health, good education, good food, 
mingling, having friends, having problems, fixing it, falling, and, and, and going back up, loving and losing the love, pain of love. And all of those things I'm saying is colorless. It's human. So how can we sit and say that person is inferior to me when you go through the exact, exact same battle every day? So what were your biggest surprises then leaving Benin and, you know, getting into uh, fle- almost, you did flee, you know, to Paris after the yeah. communist government kind of, uh, you know, forced your recording career into a corner but what was the biggest surprise then of arriving in France? Yeah, well, my first shock was the, the magnitude of ignorance mm. of people about Africa. It is just breathtaking. And France has a very close tie with Africa. I mean, it's just that crazy. The economy of France basically lies in our money that is not our money. I mean, the French-speaking country have a currency that is linked to the euro, is the same exact change, exchange rate. For the poor countries in Africa, it's hell to eat today. They will never, never get let that go because if they let it go, France will collapse. So will the eurozone will collapse. That's just the truth of it. But people are still ignorant, thinking that you come to their country to take away from them what they've worked hard for. And my question to people is, what did that take from you and what did you take from me? Let's mm-hmm. get back and start thinking. Now, and I put it on the table. The facts are out there. You call yourself civilized people. That you came to Africa to civilize us. And all you do is just killing. And take, killing and taking. What makes you think that you can be superior to me when you have blood on your hands? Even if you dehumanize me, I'm still going to be a human being. Mm. Because you're committing crime to build your wealth that you call today your work. You don't work. All the raw material you need for your industry comes from Africa. So how can you tell me, coming from Africa, that I'm, I am an immigrant and I'm coming to take your job? You have been taking my life away since I was born. And growing up in Africa, it was obvious for me that the only way we can get out of this is to get rid of colonialism completely, which means we have to have our, 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 our currency. We have to work within African countries, build infrastructure to link every country in Africa, take and then produce our good, our food. As long as we don't do that and we are not completely independent, mm. now we have China, China coming up. Chinese, they are doing exactly the same thing as the British, as the French. The, the, the German, all of them, but they are doing it systematically to, in, to enslave us with the help of our leaders. Our leader, leaders in Africa are our, are our worst enemy mm. for us as citizens. They are the ones selling our, our future short. Absolutely. They don't care about us. They are criminals that have to go. They gotta go. They, they certainly don't come. care about women. I mean, that's also... You they know, don't care in, about women. They don't no, care about anybody, anybody, but they care about their money. They care about the money that will enslave them too, because China is dangerous. So now you moved there in in 1983. Had you performed a lot in Benin when you were younger? How did music oh, yeah. come into your life so early? Where where did it all begin? Uh, my father said I start I start singing before I start talking. Oh really? <laughs> <laughs> 
Because when my mother was pregnant, she wanted another girl. She had a girl before, but she had so many boys in between. And she said, God, just give me another girl right now. And I don't care how many boys come after. And one of my aunties uh, was coming from the village for health issues in the city that would sing to my, the belly of my mother saying, don't worry, you don't have x-ray right now to see what is in there, but I can tell you she's going to be a girl and she's going to sing. So I, from what I heard from my parents, I, I was in the womb of my mom, I was always sung to. So I come out and start singing stuff I don't even know what existed. <laughs> and my father and mother, my father and mother play music too. My father played the banjo, my mom played the clarinet. Oh, but, wow. but, the passion, but the passion of my mother was theater. So I started without asking myself any question about it. And then my brothers, they decided to have a musical band and my, my father took a loan and buy the, bought the instrument for them. For the first time I saw a drum, an organ, Francisa organ, the, the, the amp, 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 amplifier for guitar, bass amplifier, a bass guitar. It was Alice in Wonderland when I came back from school in the middle of the boxes. I was like, what the <laughs> hell is going on here? <laughs> and I, 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 never, I never questioned why I'm doing music. I, it, was like, it was like breathing for me from day, from day one. So w- when the communist regime arrived and, uh, and they were forcing everybody to to just do propaganda music, I, I refuse because my father always used to say, you can have a political opinion, but you cannot be linked to a political party because they come and they go. Mm. If you want to have a career, stay away from that. So I did not want to do it, but it becomes such an issue that if I'd, I, I was touring a lot, I did my first album in 1981, and it, it allows me to tour in West Africa to start a career in the region. And it becomes so clear one day to my mom and dad that I got to leave the country. Otherwise, oh, I end up in jail or they end up in jail. Why would you end up in jail just because of the government and how there was restriction on obviously being free and performing as you wanted to perform? Yeah, but dictatorship don't give you the right to choose. You don't have the right to choose. I mean, at that period of time, even when you have to travel, you have to ask for authorization from the government. And you tell them where you're going, how long you're going, all that to keep your to, to hold your parents accountable if you don't come back. That's all it is. That's what it is. They create such a an environment of fear and distrust that you don't trust even your father. You can't trust your mother. You can't trust anyone that comes home. It's something that is absolutely horrendous. And people today are playing with the idea of dictatorship. They don't know what it is. They do not know. People that have enjoyed freedom for so long, they don't know what dictatorship is about. Look at what is going on in China. When China opens up, people never ask themselves the question and go back in history. China is the only country where no one has penetrated the culture. No one has colonized them. And they watch the whole world. And they decide is a moment where we got to open up for them to bring the technology and we can steal it from them and then we can conquer the world. Mm. And that's exactly what is going on. Chinese have their own set of rules. They don't care about anybody. They don't care about their own people. How many Chinese Mao Zedong have killed? And that was the dictatorship we were living, I was living under in Benin. How did your parents then 
make sure that that spirit was not squashed by the government and that you were, you know, how did they instill that power in you to continue to be a singer and an artist? They have always been supported. Always. My mom used to do my stage outfit. Yeah, my father would film my show. would give me one week of euphoria. And then, then the hell gonna go loose, and everybody gonna go. That dress is not good. That song, you know, it's not the right key. I mean, it was non-stop to to make me wanna be the best ever. To question everything I do. It started home. My worst critics were my parents. Nobody else could be as hard as them. Mm-hmm. So, and when they see that I was struggling with this dictatorship thing, I have a brother that was student in Paris. He left from Togo. That's what he said to my parents. Yeah, you send us here. That's mm. why I could leave. And it, we didn't tell anybody we were, we were preparing my, me leaving the country. Wow. I just, I just left. Well, you I couldn't tell left. anybody they wouldn't allow you to just leave. Oh, no. Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, no way. Oh, no. Do you remember no. what things you took with you? Do you remember the things I that you packed very, up? I took, I took very little. Yeah. I took, I took a couple of clothes wow and my uh my my book where i put my my my, my book where i put um i have a, a, a notepad with all the music that i i uh, i'll put the lyrics I, I i write the lyrics for my concert i don't even know where i put that notepad now notepad i just throw it away yeah and that's what that's what all it is and it was during the wedding of one of my cousins that we plan, we make sure that everybody knows that we are going to a wedding because even your neighbors are spying on you. So I put my, my beautiful gown, get yeah. into it in the plastic bag. I put the clothes I'm going to wear in the plane. Wow. And how old were you when you 23. left? 23. Wow. 23. And are your, is your family still in Benin or did they move as well? My father passed away in 2008. Oh, I'm sorry. My mom is still that. alive. And I lost my bigger brother that used to do the music for me, with me. Mm. He passed away July last year. Oh, gosh, I'm came so back. sorry. Yeah, he came back from South Africa for... I sent him to South Africa for his uh, prostate cancer. Oh. And uh, he came back and couldn't... It was too late. Oh, I'm so sorry. That's so... It's so... It just happened last year. That's really painful to hear i'm so sorry that you went through that especially considering that you've got all of this you know all these stories and this weight and all these experiences on your shoulder and then you're also expected to perform and do your best and make the best Mm. art that's also really tricky it is difficult i was i was on tour i was on tour when he passed away oh my god how how i i I put it up I mean, it was so painful. I'm sure. Why did you carry Ooh. on? How did you carry on? I, I can't even imagine. I couldn't tell you. It's, sitting down here looking back, Yeah. it was too heavy for me. Yes. I was just doing what I had to do because I know he, my brother was so perfectionist when it comes to music because he taught himself to play all of those instruments, guitar, bass, organ, all of those. He, he's a self-made man, music, musician. He went to Berkeley College of Music here, and they wanted to keep him, but he said, my mom is still there, my kids, my family is there. He's the only one that, that still stay home. He, he rent his house to live with my mother when my, my father passed away. 
So for, for my mother, it's a huge void. He's no longer there. He's uh, the person that come in the morning and say, how do you sleep? Is my brother. Mm. And mm. I mean, he's the backbone of all the, uh, he becomes the, 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 the head of the family co- uh, uh, community. It is just a lot. Oh, I'm so sorry. I feel very teary. It's it's also difficult to also understand. I think when people lose their family they, and they don't live close and they don't realize how their brothers and their sisters become the head of the family. You know, when you lost your when you lost your father, they don't realize how important that is and what that means yeah. when they leave. He has to. My father was gone. He has to. He has no other choice. He was the first born of my mom. How do you make sure then that you, because I, I read in an amazing interview that you did that your mom once told you you must be naked spiritually. You know, once you get on stage, you must leave all your issues in the dressing room. You must put your oh, ego yeah. outside. How? What, what yep. about your mom do you think of when you think of her now and think of all the all the confidence that she instilled in in you what do you feel about that she's the force to reckon with till today i mean she is a survivor because my mom is a single kid she didn't know her father the father died before she was born she only had her mom for so long we were everything for my mother we were brothers sisters all she got was us and she fought for us because she my, my she, uh, her mother-in-law didn't like her very much and it was not easy for my mother, but she stays there. And she said, art is about the truth. The light in you that you let shine from time to time. And it doesn't matter how long you're on that stage. Just remember, you are not alone. You are with people watching you and you are touching people's soul. In order for you to be able to do that, you've got to be completely vulnerable spiritually. You've got to be out there and giving everything you have. Sometimes you give more than you think you have. That everybody have an ego. You mm-hmm. don't have to be an artist to have an ego. We all need an ego to stand every day next to other people because some people are really have a personality that can overpower you. But you got. But at the same time, you have to live also. You have to exist. You have to have a space. But when it comes to stage, it's not about your ego. If your ego get on the way. Then you stand up there looking at your belly button and looking at, and telling yourself how great <laughs> you are. Nobody moves that on stage. Mm. Everybody can stand up in the in front of the mirror every morning and do that shit. Yeah, you know, it's not what you're on stage for. So for me, it has been very clear since I was a kid that being on stage is like something sacred. For me, my stage is a sanctuary. Everybody is welcome as long as you don't bring on that stage violence and hate so when did you actually start touring do you remember your first ever performance that you had in benin or even in france do you remember that that first show that you ever did i remember in benin i was so scared (laughs) i was so scared i was six years old my mom shoveled me on that stage (laughs) i was like hell no i'm not going she goes yeah you're going And then people start laughing. I'm like, okay, the light, I have the spotlight in my face. Mm. And as long as I couldn't see the public, I'm like, okay, I'm just going to do my crazy stuff I do home. I was the clown of the house. I make everybody laugh. Yes. I'm like, nobody's seeing me. I'm going to do as I do home. And then when I started, I didn't even realize it was silent. 
And then I finished and suddenly everybody stood up in the standing ovation. I was already gone. And my mom like, go back to the stage. People are clap, clap, clapping for you. I said, hell no, I ain't going nowhere. I'm out of here. <laughs> I'm, I'm out of here. Yeah. Clowns. <laughs> totally. Do you feel that that allowed you to approach performance and touring and making music in a way that maybe others didn't? It allowed you that strength almost because you didn't need to perform. It just was something that became natural to you. I preferred to be on stage not to be in the studio to tell you the truth. I hate studio. I can't stand it. Oh, really? I can't stand it. Why? Why am I going to be standing in front of that thing and singing to the wall? Like, yeah. <laughs> uh-uh, I don't want that. I really don't. Yeah. So <laughs> I have to live up to that. I started my career on stage. So it was really important for me to continue that, to continue making people feel good about themselves on stage and also to have fun. Because if you want to entertain people, you got to have fun. If you don't have fun, you're bored. The public, the people are going to go. So every time for me, it's, it's a new show. I never take the public for granted. I always start from scratch. And the day it hits me, the words that my mom had been saying to the actors and actresses in her theater group, when you get to that stage, before you get to that stage, you have to be ready to be naked. The day I understood it, I stopped being afraid of going to, on stage. It stops. Because I said, nothing can be wrong. Nothing can... Nothing bad can happen to me because I'm going to do what I was born to do. And that humility that comes with it gives you power. And you obviously, you, you, you also explored different types of things that obviously affected you when you were younger. Like your, your amazing cover. You, well, I can't even call it a cover album because it just has its own spirit. Listening to you sing songs uh, from Remain in Light is just... Yes. There, there is something like when you say, look at these hands, um, yeah. <laughs> you feel, you feel like you wrote it. It's, and as you can yeah. tell this, this, my podcast is called, this must be the gig, which is based off of this must be the place. Cause I love talking heads as well. Um, and I definitely understand how you connected to this African spirit of some of those songs. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, that's what I told people when people were telling me, those words are absurd. I said, no, when you come from Africa, no words are absurd. No. Words have meaning beyond. Mm. You guys in the Western world, you just use words without thinking about it. <laughs> I mean, we don't do that in Africa. I mean, everything, the tone you use to say something, you can offend somebody, does not even know you're offending the person. Mm, exactly. I mean, yeah. And people say, really? I say, yeah, really. I mean, words are important. It hurts more than anybody slapping your face. Absolutely. But that's why self-reflection and honesty within African communities and African countries, it always feels much more like it is from your ancestry. It doesn't come straight yeah. from just you yeah. right now. It always feels deeper. I don't even know how yeah, to explain it, it. I wish I could explain it, but... Me too, I wish I could explain it because every time I'm not in Benin, I'm anywhere in Africa, mm. you, you, you feel that kinship. It's just it's something that we can't explain. It's just embedded in our soul. And we can't, we can't live without it. If somebody takes it out of us, we're no longer a human being, let alone an African. I mean, it's just like, it's, I don't know what, to, what it is. And, and people are like, everywhere you go in Africa, you feel comfortable. I said, yes. Yes. 
because we're all the same. We're all the same. It doesn't yeah. matter where we come. It's just like we, we just have we African have to get our game together. It's not because you come from South Africa, I come from Benin that we can't speak to each other. We have more in common than any other people on the planet. This is where it all started. And we have to embrace those differences to be able to be an example, an ideal, and a platform for people to understand that diversity is not a threat. No. It's a plus. Exactly. That's a... <laughs> Thank you. I've, I, that is what I say all the time is that when I walk into a place where there's only one type of person, I feel incredibly unsafe. I don't feel, I feel comfortable. comfortable. It's eerie. Yes. It's, it's eerie. It, that, I'm not, I, oh, thank you. Not an alien. It's like even traveling to Australia feels that way. Even traveling to, you know, parts of the States, some parts, and it's oh, not shit. their fault, you know, but I felt, and I am white and I felt like, who is going to, who's going to attack me? I didn't feel, yeah. I didn't feel like home because in home you speak however many languages you want to speak yeah. so that you can talk yeah. to people next to you. Yeah. You you don't yeah, live you know, obviously some places in South Africa, you do live in a bubble. You have to. Yeah. Um, and that isn't right, which is exactly why I left. But there is so much about diversity that makes you feel mm. like home. And that's why I, st- I live in Chicago. And many places in the States are similar, but Chicago feels diverse. I'm not ever hearing Hola. just English. I discovered Chicago for my daughter because when she, she graduated from Yale, yes. she moved straight Two, two or three weeks after she came back from Yale, she moved all her stuff to Chicago. She spent four years in Chicago. Amazing. I mean, wow. she's just like, she brought me to understand Chicago in a different way. And that's the, the thing that when you have kids, they bring you to places. America, out of every other place, is weird. You come from one place to the so other. So weird. It's so strange. I know. And, and <laughs> but, but you only experience that strangeness when you come here. You know, we all grew up with the movies and the books and the, and the, the music. Yeah. And then you come here and you're like, what the hell is going on? Why? Yeah. It's very, you're right. It's very strange. And there is a certain cultural difference between us and them i mean i'm sure when you are touring you feel a difference between an american audience versus a european audience or an african oh, audience. Yeah. oh oh yeah oh, all the audiences are different i mean it, 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 um, when i started touring in america i didn't understand first why i was so uncomfortable in some places and comfortable in some places and some places and i realized realized the magnitude of this country it's big so and big. it's done in a way that it's weirdly sick that we cannot connect and rely to relay on each other the same way it's weird and, th- and also apart from the concert i used to do speaking engagement since i wrote my book and most of the time i'll, I'll do it at university or women conferences or any conferences and here i am speaking english Mm. But you always have to adapt your language to the reality of the place where you are. And the last uh, speaking engagement I had last year was in Jackson Hole in Wyoming. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. <laughs> oh. What was that? Oh, God. I know, I'm too scared to ask how that was. It was intense. I'm sure. It was intense because 
there was some um, high school young girl that wanted that came to that and they asked to meet me after and that's where it becomes really interesting out of the the face of the public they start confiding in me and you have one young girl 16 years old stood up with tears falling down her cheeks wow saying saying to me i'm afraid to live in this country I'm like, oh, no, come on, sweetheart. Come on, come to my arms. No, 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 no. What is going on? You cannot say that. You cannot. I don't want to hear that. She said every time she walked in the street, they said, go back to your country. Wow. Where was she from? She's American. The teacher was there. I said, let's, let's come down. I mean, let's, let's put every uh, talk aside. We got to deal with this. Have you talked to anyone? She said, no. I said, now you talk to me. We got to poke this open. Mm. The teacher here has to talk to you about this. Your parents have to know this. You belong to this country. Even if your parents are immigrants in this country, you are born in this country, and you have every right to be able to walk tall in every street in this country. And what really I find out out of that, they decided that they're going to come to to my, uh, to my uh, uh, speech, mm. to my talk, after reading my book. Mm. I'm like, how do you get that? And one of them said, after reading your book, I decided that the job I'm going to do is going to be a human rights lawyer. Oh, wow. Did you ever expect that to happen, to have that effect on, because I'm sure you feel so approachable. Do you, did you, what are the kind of things that people tell you that they're inspired by? Because there's so many influences that you have, but you know, you, you obviously were a UNICEF you oh you are a UNICEF ambassador if I'm right. Yep. And you also run the Batonga Foundation, which Foundation. I would obviously yeah. love to hear more about because I know that my listeners would love to hear more about that. But what kind of stories have you heard from people who have come up to you, not only inspired by the work you do on a humanitarian level, but also from your art? I don't know. Sometimes it's just. Oof, it makes me want to cry. Sometimes I'm like, whoa, why are we living in such a disconnected world? I mean, it's, the, thing, the thing is, my music has brought me to, to meet amazing people around the world. I mean, I go to Australia every two years, and I still see the same people mm. that welcome me when I get there in, in the 90s, early 90s. It's the only place on this planet, apart from my hometown, and I walked in, get out of the plane, and you have people I don't know from nowhere with banners saying, welcome, Angelique Kitchen. Oh, wow. I was like, what? In Australia? What in the world, what, what wow. in the world is this? <laughs> I've had people come to me and tell me different type of stories. A lady in Houston, I invited people on stage as I used to do. She started dancing, and then at one point, she was at the corner of the stage and sobbing, crying. So I went to her. I was like, are you hurt? Something's wrong. What is it? And then she said to me on stage that if anyone would have told her that she would come to this stage and see me and be alive, mm-hmm. she would say, this is a lie. Because she was diagnosed with final um, uh, breast cancer. Oh. And her sister or friends brought her my album. And she said, you were the only voice that would get me out of my, uh, my treatment, that get me up from that place where 
I'm I'm flirting with death. And the voice was telling, was telling me, no, you can't go there. And she hang on to that music. She fought. And the doctor said, they don't have any words how she made it out here. Wow. But she knew that it was my music that brought her back from the dead to the living. But how important is it then for you to continue to travel? Is that why also just with, you know, having to go through so many hardships in your life, is that why you continue to do it? I believe that if you are a human being that has some privilege given to you by nature, it comes with a duty. It comes with responsibility. It's up to you to choose to do something about it or not. And I decided from the get-go, because I was born like that. My parents were desperate for me. I would fight for other people. The, every physical fight I've been involved in in elementary school or high school was fighting for other people's rights. And my father was always used to say to me, don't get into physical fights because you lose the battle. Use your brain. It's your ultimate weapon. And I start understanding that, and I start thinking before acting. And my mom and dad have helped beyond any other people I've known. With one paycheck, not only my father was able to send 10 kids to school, but beyond those 10 kids, any child that was dropped in that house, my father said, you ain't going to sit in my house not going to school. Even if you have to stretch and we have to eat the same food for days and months, you go to school. So that's where I come from. If I can do something to better somebody's life and I'm there and I don't do it, I can't live with myself. I just can't. So for me, starting Batonga Foundation, it all started with primary education that when I was I appointed UNICEF Google Ambassador in 2002. Mm. It was the, 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 it coincided with the Millennium Development Goals, where every child has to have access to primary education. So I recorded a lot of PSA for radio, TV, in many different languages, urging parents to send their kids to school. And we have enrollment beyond our expectations. And the school was not ready for that amount of people. So you have rotations, rotated school. And couple of, one or two years into that, I was in Tanzania with UNICEF with something completely different. And I've been approached by mothers that came to me and said, we know you. We know your music. Mm. We know what you stand for. We put our girls to primary education. Wow. And we just have to remind you that if those girls finish primary education, and they don't go to secondary education, they're going to end up in early marriage. Mm-hmm. Like exactly. us. Exactly. Yeah. And one of the reasons, one of the reasons we choose this opportunity to send them to primary education with your messages is because we hope that they can go to secondary education. What are we going to do about it? That's when I start thinking about secondary education. And when I started in 2006, people from that noise a, a bit about education were telling me, why are you going to do that? You're going to fail because the dropout in secondary education is higher than anything else. And I said, my reply at that time was, if it's easy, why bother? Mm. We need to reach out to those girls because the idea that our kids are going to be sleeping in the bed of 50 years old men it's not a tradition, it's a rape. I refuse that. Exactly. So I started Batonga Foundation in 2006, and my first um, mandate was to give them scholarship, uniform, books, tutoring, mentoring, 
one meal a day in five different countries, Benin, Mali, Cameroon, Ethiopia, and Sierra Leone. In Sierra Leone, in, in Waterloo, where we are, the second city, we built the school from scratch. Wow. It was successful because one of the things that was really clear for me, I said, I would do this only if we work with local NGOs that knows the girl. I don't want to be in the cities. I want to reach out to the poorest of the poorest, the ones that have the brain, that don't have the means to go to school. That was my, my, my mandate from the beginning. So I, the, the mentors were are made of men and women at the beginning, and they were my voice, my ears, and the interface between the family and the school. And I worked with local NGOs, such as Save the Children, uh, Mercy Corps, um, uh, world, world education, all those people we work together because I believe in putting together resources from the get-go to have a better and a, a, a long-lasting um, result. Absolutely. So it happens to be that the girls in Kidal, in the northern part of Mali, were the first ones to drop out, out of the radar because of the terrorists. I never have any news from those girls, and no, not one one bit of people from the UN can get, get in there and get me any information. And wow. that was a heartbreaking for me because those girls from the get-go, every year they send me their grade, they send me letters, mm. and telling and thanking me for allowing them to, to become something else but white. In Ethiopia, for example, we work in Addis Ababa with Save Your Children, and in the southern part, in Abermage, we work with Mercy Corps. Mm-hmm. And what we realize in the southern part of Ethiopia is that instead of giving the scholarship to the girls, we give that scholarship as a loan to the mother. And in return, she paid the scholarship. It was a success. Because what, what that does is that it reinstalls the mother in her role of parent. Mm. What we have to be careful about is not to unbalance completely. We, don't, we can have a girl going to school that is educated and start not respecting the mother because she thinks that she's better than the mother. Absolutely, exactly, and have that imbalance, yeah. Exactly. So after almost 10 years, now I want to, uh, my focus now is reaching out. We stopped the scholarship program, and I start working with population council because the rate of dropout, I want to understand it and how we can salvage those girls. Mm. And they, they have a technology called Girl Roaster okay. that they use in Guatemala that works. That cell phone has database in it where you can map a community of 5,000 people a day. Wow. And you collect all those information. And when you come back to your computer, you plug the phone, the phone on your computer, you have a map mm-hmm. of the situation of the community and the girls. So what comes out of that first mapping in 2016? The girls, first of all, they needed a place, a safe place. We create what we call girls' clubs for them to be able to meet together at a place where they feel safe, where they can learn and start a business. And also what we learn is the girls, are they living alone when they drop out of school? Are they married? Do they have children? Are they about to be married? Yes, what is the reason? Yeah. What the reason and how we can give them an activity-based income. They come up with their own business plan. And I'm telling you, we started with 60 clubs. Now we, are, we double that and the number of kids are growing. Wow. And what happened, what happened and that is really making me always come to tears 
is that those girls, when I started with them, you ask them, what is your name? They won't talk. Today, they come up and they tell you exactly what it is. Mm. And they say, they don't want this anymore. And the mentors, I, I changed the, the recruitment of mentor. And now I want only women. Good. From 25 to 40 years old. I want them to be there for the girl. And I, the, the mandate they have is let them be free to speak up freely. Mm-hmm. No religious brainwash, mm-hmm. no traditional brainwash. It's going to be there for the well-being. Whatever they need, that's what they're going to have. And it's absolutely amazing because right now, what we are doing is reducing the gap of gender inequality. Those girls are so powerful. And what I insisted also, because in that endeavor, MasterCard Foundation has helped me. And if you go on the Master, MasterCard Foundation website, you'll see the work that we do and the report of it. Now I ask them, instead of 12, from 12 years old to 20, I want to go down. I want, to, I want younger from 10 to 12. Mm. So we start, we start, and I meet those little girls. I mean, some of them are already suffering hell, but they won't say but suddenly you see that they, you can see. now they, you can see that they know that I can become somebody else, but not just a bride. So what do you need? So for people listening now who feel like they don't do enough or feel like they don't know what to do, what could, what, what is a call to action right now? What could they do for your foundation and for the work that you do? How can they help? They can go on the website and engage any way they want. It's not only money that we need, we also need, because what I, I realized, in order for them to be those girls to be successful, we need a different curriculum than what is going on. Mm. Because I realize that putting them to school only, the teachers are not good, so they fail. So if they can go to a school with good teachers, we need people with life skill mm. to teach them how to run their business. And the mother told me December, last December I was there, she came to me and said, Thank you for doing this. Because the rate of child marriage has decreased. And wow. most importantly for me as a mother, the rate of abortion has disappeared. My friend started a rape crisis center called Nonseba uh, in South Africa, in Cape Town, in one of the townships. And it's it's there. She built it. And obviously the rape statistics in, uh, in Africa, in South Africa, are extraordinary. You don't ever want to look at them. Oh, my God. Because they are so high that you feel sick to your stomach that this is happening yep. continuously. And yep. it's, not, it's not stopping. It's slowing down, but it's not stopping. So thanks for obviously... Yeah, we got, we got you know, to work. We, got, we need, as I said... Not only we need women, we need men also on this issue. Exactly. Because the, in, in our legislation, rape is a crime. But how can we implement that into action when at the head of the country you have leaders that rape women? Yeah. Having your new album, which is so incredible. You, you have a new album coming out inspired by a musician, the queen of salsa. And mm-hmm. that's obviously amazing to expose the world to the African roots of so many different musical traditions. But is this, mm-hmm. is this something, especially coming from Remain in the Light, and, you know, you've obviously, gosh, you, you've done so much within the last few years. Do you feel like this is something 
you know, you also named Jazz Master by Harvard University, all these accolades. What do you feel you have left to do? Because your songs are always imbued with so much emotion. It's, it's, you can feel every single note and every single sound through it. Is there something that you feel like you haven't done yet that you still, or a place maybe in the world that you haven't gone that you want to visit? There are so many places I wanted to go. There's so much stuff I want to do. And for me, it's all about inspiration. I mean, Celia Cruz has been, for me, the woman that made me realize that Sasa is not only a man business. Because most of the Sasa band I made is male. And when she came in, it was a slap in the face. A good slap in the face. Mm, yeah. She's a strong woman. She has been going through all those cliches about black people. Black people nose, black people lips. And she the persona she created for herself is that I don't care what you say. I'm me twenty four seven. I will put red lipstick on, I'm gonna put any kind of wig on, I can put any crazy outfit, any crazy shoes, but I'm me. That's what I want the young generation to realize. That you don't have to fit into a standard. Be you, be different, but don't copy at the risk of your life. Celia Cruz was generous. She was powerful. She was joyful. One of the things that is really that really strikes me is the joy, the pleasure she exudes when she's on stage. Mm. And today, we have darkness filling up every space. I want to bring light. I want to bring joy to every dark place. For each one of us to know that it's not that some people want us to feel powerless, that we have to give them our life without fighting back. But we're going to fight. I feel like also, especially considering how much you've been able to do you know, over these years, you also, a couple of months ago, I read that you performed as the soloist for the world premiere of Philip Glass's Symphony Number no. 12 mm -hmm. alongside LA's Philharmonic Orchestra. What was it like being involved in that? And, and, and how do you feel? Because it feels like it's not quick between the times, but, you know, you're inspired by Celia and David Byrne and Talking Heads and working alongside Philip Glass, all these incredible people that you are inspired and influenced by. How do you, what does it feel like to be involved in all of that? Well, Philip Glass put me in the middle of this without asking me first. Okay. He called me and said, okay, Angelique, well, okay. They asked me for the 100 years of L.A. Field to work on the, on the last, uh, trilogy of uh, David Bowie in Berlin. So he, he already did Law and, um, and Heroes before. And then he, they tell him, why don't you complete that trilogy by doing Logic? And then he said to them, well, I'll listen to it. I don't like the music much. But they said, please do something. <laughs> then he said, he came back and listened to it and he said, okay, if I do this, I will do it only at the condition that Angelique will be the soloist because she's the only person that can do it. And then he called me up and said that, I said, okay, Philip, already you put my name out there, I can't say no to this. So it took me another month to learn all this, but it's fun because you discover David Bowie as a poet. Mm. His poetry is beautiful. I mean, it's amazing, we don't know that from him. And the subject on the song Lodger are absolutely amazing. Mm. 
And we were talking about traveling around the world when he arrived in Kenya because he went to Kenya with his son. Yes. When he arrived in Africa, he's just talking about all the cliches that he had in his mind that doesn't fit the reality. At least he was honest enough to talk about it. He was talking about women abuse mm. in those. And when he wrote the song, Johnny is a man and he's bigger than her. I guess the bruise, I guess the bruises won't show if she wear long if she wears long sleeves. Mm. I mean, but the space in her eyes shows through. That is the thing that I love to sing because mm. it's so accurate. So when I saw all this and I'm like, Philip, I'm like, Philip, I'm doing it. There's no way I say no to this. Because it's just what I who I am. Absolutely, especially because it was the last of the trilogy, and there's so. If you just even look at the title, I don't know the sequence of it offhand, but I know that like African Night Flight is like number four. You uh, know, he already puts you in the African moment. African Night <laughs> one time moment, moment for Inula Balumen. I know that. Oh, love oh. that. And boys keep <laughs> swinging, and oh my gosh, um, look back in anger as well. Boy. Uh, Boys, yeah. boys keep swinging. Boys always work it out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, I love it. I love it. But so I going from that and performing there, and then you have your upcoming tour. Obviously, you'll tour with various projects throughout the year. And I know that you're going to be opening up for Vampire Weekend at Madison Square Garden on September 6th. And... Mm-hmm. That's a band, I suppose, who's always leaned really heavily on African music traditions. But I was curious what you thought of particularly, you know, American, but particularly white American bands utilizing African music cues. Because obviously that's something that Talking Heads did to great acclaim, but also something that Vampire Weekend has gotten a lot of pushback from. All about appropriation and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, well, you know what? (laughs) People cannot push back on that. Where does the blues come from? Ah, if you like the blues, you have been listening to African music from the mo- from from the moment you start. Li- I mean, jazz, where it come from? Bebop, where does it come from? Hip hop, where does it come from? Country music, what does it come from? I mean, excuse me. Do you feel like obviously because how did that? Uh, I think in my mind, I'm like, how did that opportunity come about? Because you know, what What do you think of, of a band like that making a lot of money and getting attention on African traditions? The way that Talking Heads put within their albums, they put information, you know, they, they were never there to copy, as you said earlier. It was always an interpretation. So do you feel like opening for somebody like Vampire Weekend in a year like 2019, you feel very confident about? That's something that you're excited about? Absolutely. I mean, the first time I met the Vampire Weekend uh, band, um, I was doing, I was an MC, among the MC of Peter Gabriel's uh, Foundation Weakness. Mm-hmm. So I was about to introduce them. And I walked in, and I I didn't knew I didn't know who they were. They go, Ashley Kijo, we love this song, and we love. I'm like, looking at those white dudes. <laughs> you know, you know my song. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, ooh, I feel stupid right now. Who are you? They say Vampire Weekend, and I'm like, I'm gonna listen. I'm gonna check you guys out. They say one day you're gonna come, we're gonna do Malaika together on stage. I said, no problem. <laughs> and we became friends from that moment on. I've been working 
with Ezra Conning, the the singer, mm-hmm. for wonderful. years. I mean, mm-hmm. I've known Ezra for the last, I would say, pretty much ten years, and he's an interesting dude when it comes to music, because what he told me, he grew up, his parents, most of them, most of those kids, why do why kids are you said? They were listening to the music of Africa. They were listening to King Sonia Day, all those music from Africa. All of them. Miriam Makeba, Hugh Masekela, all of them. Oh, my favorite. Li- I love Miriam Makeba so he much. Grew up, mm. He grew up listening to all those music. Mm. So how are you going to tell a child that have had progressive parents that teach them to think outside of the box, to listen to other music, that they can't do what they learn, what they heard. It's like me, I can't touch any music because I learned that when I was a kid. What works for me has to work for the other guys too. So that's where everything stays. We cannot say we have to open our children to the world and not allow them to express that word, world the way they wanted to. Absolutely. And also, especially because you are also inspired by them equally uh, and you know how talented yeah. he is and you know that their heart is in the right pa- place. You know, obviously, appropriation, yeah. uh, that whole conversation is is sometimes so difficult to have because it's also tokenizing the word appropriation, which I think is just a blanket term for excusing people's behavior. And obviously, if you're inspired and influenced and you know the history and that's it's authentic and you've brought up with it, you know, you, you were brought up with it. It's very difficult to say that you're not allowed to do something, that that part and pocket of art is not reserved for you. And it's really hard to see, you know, people commenting on that. As long as you recognize the source of your inspiration, it's OK. So, I mean, yeah, music have only 12 notes. And those 12 notes have created, among everything, amazing piece of art. Music is the only form of art that brings people together. Somebody sent me the video of the Pope in Morocco with the orchestra allowing Muslim, Jewish, and Christian singing the cantics of God in their languages. The only form of art of, of that can make that happen is that. Suddenly you see that we've been fighting on the name of God, killing people on the name of God. There's only one God, damn it. There's only one. So I don't care who wants to instrumentalize the, mm. a God. We've made God a monster because we don't have the courage of facing our own weakness our own thirst of blood. God sent no one here to kill anyone. Zero. It's our choices. Let him out of our misery. So so if you could not play God, but if you could play like as though you ruled the universe and you had the power to, say, build a festival and a music experience to your liking... What would it, what would it look like? Who where would that music concert be, and who would be, who would perform? Anybody. <laughs> it would be days and days. <laughs> yeah. I would do a festival. We're gonna start with traditional music from all around the world, one after the other. 
around the world. It's going to be the whole year. And they have to meet. It's not just playing and leave. There have to be conversations. They come together and create peace of art from there. Doesn't matter what language. Doesn't mm-hmm. matter the skin color. We're going to start from the foundation of the, what music is. And we can finish it with classical music or we can finish with hip hop. It doesn't matter. We got to, if I have to do that, that's what I'm going to do. Throughout the years that all of us, musicians and artists, painting will follow that. You've got a lot of different upcoming shows. You've got in uh, North Carolina, you've got in New Jersey, you've got in London, Paris, Mm -hmm. Luxembourg. Gosh, I'm just looking at the list. You've got, uh, then you come back to the States and then you'll be in New York by September. Is there a venue mm-hmm. that you love playing? Especially considering how you have, you'll be doing Celia and Remain in Light at certain different, you know, at different shows. I like the public to be close to me. I've yes. always liked that. Amazing. I love Carnegie Hall. I love Royal Albert Hall. I love Sydney House, Opera House. I love, uh, I mean, I love places where the sound is so good that you don't have to do any effort to sing. I know, obviously, you saw Celia perform when you were younger, but is there, a, is there a performance or a concert that you saw that really changed the way that you felt about music and performance? Celia was the first one, and uh, Miriam Makiba, of course. Ah, where did you I see mean- her? I did. I opened for Miriam Makeba in Paris in 1989. Oh my gosh! And I didn't know that. I was. Ah! I was. That's I amazing. was so. I was such a fan. I was. Mm. She means the world mm. to me. When I was being asked to sing to open for her, I pinched myself days and days in before it started, and I was so excited. I get sick the next day. I mean, I could not believe I was going to be in the presence of Miriam. She came when I was doing my sound check and she listened to and then with that soft voice said, Go ahead, my girl. I'm like, Oh my god, I'm gonna die. <laughs> She's I mean like Miriam Makiba song yeah. they seem easy, but when you start singing them, it's a different story. Like what song in particular are you thinking about? All of them. All of them. If you can't sing from your gut, don't talk Miriam. I mm. say. Oh, I love everything about her. There's so, I, I just thinking about her now, I listen to her at least once a week if I can. It's just what I was brought yep. up with. Yep. And I think that, especially because like on some of our advertisements, even you had the click song or, you know, yeah. you had Soweto Blues and from Molela, you know, you had so many oh, of yeah. those songs just playing in the in the shops, you know, in 7-Eleven or wherever you walked into a store. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. So you performed for her and then did you get to watch her after you opened yeah. for her? Yeah, and then I, I, I come to know Miriam. I mean, we've done some festivals together. She gave me a, a lot of advice on being, because before I go on stage with my watch, and she said, no, you can't go walk on that stage with the watch. Because... Oh. If you have a watch, you have the tendency of want to look at the time. Yes. Oh when gosh. Stage, okay. You don't you don't look? Don't you don't look at the time? What else did she give you advice about? That's incredible. I didn't. I didn't know. I didn't know that. What <laughs> else did she tell you? She was mad about the word world music. Mm. And she said, actually, Aren't as long as all? they try, to, yeah, she said, as long as they try to to, um, to label us, refuse every label because you're a human being. There's no label for human beings. 
And that's still going on now. Can I tell you the other day I went into a record store here and guess where Miriam Makeba's record was? The world music section. Yeah. It makes me crazy. Yeah. So if somebody well, had never heard your music before, if somebody from the future literally came and was like, what do you do for a living? Tell me about your heart. What do you look, what does it look like? How would you even begin to describe it? Oh, you know what? That question has been put to me. And I said to people, I don't know. How do you breathe? <laughs> oh my God, I have to clap. That's amazing. I mean, people ask me questions. I'm like, are you breathing when you ask me that question? How do you breathe? Mm. We all have to breathe. If you don't breathe, you die. Do you feel like there's something that you want people to know about you that maybe there's a misconception about you? Do you feel like there's something that... Oh, yeah. People always say, people sometimes they say, Angelique is always angry. I'm not angry. No. I am, I am passionate. Exactly. And I cannot the waste of life, the waste of talent, when people decide who you have to be, who gives you the right to tell anyone what they have to be? Do you know what you're going to be yourself? And let alone telling people what they got to do. I am against injustice. I'm about empowering people and giving people the choice to make their own mistakes. Mm. It's okay to fail. You don't fail, you don't know success. Success is just, is just a matter of failure. So here we are living in a society where everybody want to be politically correct. These have to be like that. It's not possible. We are not perfect, nor do nature. What have you seen in nature that is perfect? Even a, a tree, the leaves are not the same length. Nothing about nature is perfect. Why should we be perfect? Who are we to spend so much time and energy judging people? You don't want to be judged, don't judge somebody. If you don't want somebody to throw a stone at you, don't start throwing the stone. Mm, mm. If you don't want somebody to hurt you, don't hurt people. What you don't like anyone to do to you, don't do to other people. Mm. And we keep on forgetting those simple principles. And then when I'm talking about it, I get passionate. I'm not angry. I'm just, I just want you to re remember and to realize that if you don't take a step back and think about it, something happens to you that day and another day, you can't blame anybody for that because you haven't given somebody the chance to be, to be, to be who they want to be. And also calling somebody angry or aggressive when the words are not angry or aggressive. It's the tone and your delivery that's passionate because of your life and things that have happened in your life. And people but can't, I realize like, that. Yeah. But one of the things that I realize is that people don't like passion. Mm, of course they if don't. It scares them. If you're, you're, if you're a passionate person, you put people out on ease. Because people just want to go to the surface of things. And when you push them to open up, they don't want to go there because they never open up themselves to understand who they are, really. And my passion, I can't quench down to please people. If I'm mad, I tell you I'm mad. Right now, I'm not being passionate. I'll tell you straightforward. Mm. I am mad mm. because what you did is not right. Mm. That's why I'm mad. I'm not mad at you. I'm mad at the situation. The situation, exactly. Because you did something wrong. If you do something wrong, just apologize. I grew up in a household where my father said to us, I don't want to deal with guilt. 
Guilt is out of this house. Guilt will make you an afraid, an afraid person. You're going to be afraid of your own shadow. You do something wrong, apologize and move on. And especially hearing that when you're so young, it's so complex and nuanced, that idea of bringing everything to the forefront, the way that I was, I was raised and grew up. My parents said, you say something. If you have an issue, you put your hand up and you say something. You never do it with aggression, but you speak out. And I feel like people are very afraid of that because not only does it make them reflect on themselves, but it makes you seem obviously unfamiliar. Maybe they disconnect from that feeling. Maybe they feel like they can't do enough and you're, you know, because you you are basically holding up a mirror, you know, and it's Mm -hmm. hard to find, it's hard to listen to that. But I'm so proud that that we live in in an age that you are at the forefront of your career, you have accomplished so much and people have taken notice. I always say, if you're not ready to have a kid, please don't have any. Mm. Same with pets. You don't like pets or you don't have time for them, don't have them. So when I was growing up, my father always consistently saying, if you don't speak up, I can't read your brain. I can't help you if you have a problem. If you don't speak up, I don't say, I won't tell you I have all the answers because I can't answer to all the questions. I will help you find your answers. I will walk you through it for you to find out where did you make a mistake. And from that point on, you learn. And when the situation occurs again, you know where you draw your boundaries. Mm. That's how, that's where I come from. I never blame anyone for my actions. Never. I have no shame to say, I'm sorry. Mm, take accountability. I apologize to you. I really, I, I, feel, I feel horrible about myself right now, about what I say or what I do. You don't want to accept my apology. I can't force you to. But at least I said so. Accepting apologies is also a matter of humility. Mm. People that don't, don't accept apologies because they want to feel offended and hold you accountable, and, 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 and hold you by guilt, they have other issues. I'm not going to talk to you ever again. I'm moving on. It's a protective thing. It's like a protective spell that people, self-protection is really dangerous when people just choose to either escape it or just don't address issues or they don't want to hear what's wrong with them and they don't want to move on and build and grow. It's really difficult, especially in, in, you know, some of the things that you sing about and, and you, you know, your music and how you tackle that. You come mm-hmm. front and face into people's faces with things that they need to question about themselves. But we don't do that often. No, we don't. We don't do that. We are always running away from ourselves. Because when you take the time and you sit down and you look at, at yourself in the mirror, sometimes it's not pretty. Mm. But it's absolutely compulsory to do it for you to keep your humanity, to be able to see the humanity of others. Mm. And just check yourself. Yeah. Check yourself first and foremost. When you ask me, what can I do to help in Africa? I said, first of all, the question, the way you put it is wrong. We cannot be your charity. Certainly where you come from, there are people that need help in your community. Mm -hmm. Start in your community. You cannot help people 
if you're not able to help the people around that you, you live if you don't see the reality of the racism or the segregation of where you live in. Mm -hmm. If you lose the ability to be able to put yourself in somebody else's shoes and you feel entitled to everything and the other person not having any rights, then you have a problem with yourself. Because when you're going to need help, the problem that you, the person that you disenfranchise, the person that you have taken everything away from, that person will might be the person that will save your butt. Mm. What are you going to do then? You're going to think that you're entitled to that help and walk away without saying thank you? One day life is going to slap you in the face. I always say, action call, from, call for reaction. If you do not do anything and you just walk your way through this life, taking and taking and taking and knocking people down, one day life is going to say, stop. You're going to hit a wall so bad. Then when you get up, you look left and right, no one will be there to help you. And you only have yourself to blame. And I feel like African music and music that comes from Africa, the, the basis is all about collaboration and being together and bringing that spirit. You know, it's, it's, oh, yeah. it's all about oh, yeah. being together and making sure that you're working as a collective as opposed to just operating. Is it that there's that old African proverb that I always think about, which is if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And that's exactly what... Yeah. That's exactly what you're saying. It is too. This Must Be The Gig is produced by Adam Kibble and we'd like to thank Billy Yost and the Kickback for our theme song, Rube, and buy their music at thekickbackband.com, Lexi Frame for the artwork, Daniel Brater and Dean Berger for the additional sound design, and the Consequence Podcast Network, where you'll find a bunch of other amazing shows. Hey! If you've listened this far, why not go the extra mile and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts. Your comments provide valuable feedback for us and it helps other people find us too. For information on new episodes, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram at TMBTGPod and generally just irritate everyone you know about the show. Thanks again and I miss you already. Consequence Podcast Network.